0: Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Charlene Chu. Dr. Chu is a professor in the Department of Pathology at the University of Pittsburgh, and her studies relate to neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson and other afflictions. Dr. Chu, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you. I appreciate you joining us by telephone, and I might ask you just to share a brief overview of your studies and the status of those studies.
1: I have had a long-standing interest in why the dopaminergic neurons of the substantia nigra degenerate in Parkinson's disease, and given the fact that Parkinson's disease is a chronic neurodegenerative disease, what we started off being very interested in was actually not so much the cell death pathways, but what goes wrong with the injury pathways that neurons and all cells can take to try to protect themselves. So in the course of doing that, we were very interested in trophic factor signaling, so growth factors that promote the differentiation and support survival of neurons. And we had originally hypothesized that oxidative stress would impair the ability of the cells to mount this neuroprotective signaling response. And what we found is actually quite different. We found that one of the signaling pathways that should have been neuroprotective was actually activated to a high degree during injury, but when we inhibited this pathway, it increased cell survival. So this is telling us that a so-called neuroprotective pathway that's activated in the cell sometimes can be activated to a very high degree, but instead of being beneficial, it has detrimental effects. We saw the same thing when we became interested in autophagy, which is the process by which a cell will take part of itself, sequester it in membranes inside itself, and deliver them to the garbage dump of the cell or the lysosome, where the contents can be digested and then the building blocks recycled to make new things. So what quickly became apparent is that adaptive protective responses are generally good but sometimes, when they're overactivated, when they're activated to a sustained or a very high level, there's kind of a trade-off. You can have some protective effects, but they can also start to harm the cell. And that's actually where our work is going. Uh, it seems that a lot of these protective responses, the right amount is what you need. Too much or too little is actually bad for the cell. So, for example, with autophagy, that process of self-digestion, if you have a few damaged constituents in the cell, such as the mitochondria or the power generators of the cell, if you were to sequester and digest and remove those, then it would be beneficial for the cell. However, in the case of neurons, neurons are incredibly dependent on mitochondria, and what we found is that if there's too much degradation of mitochondria, then this can in turn interfere with the function of the neuron and therefore lead to cell death because neurons have a function and then they require feedback from achieving that function to kind of keep them healthy and alive. And so the big tradeoff that we've found is that the autophagy, while it can kind of protect the neuron in the short term, keep it alive a little bit longer, that it seems to cause the extended part of the cell. So neurons have very long extensions that allow a cell in the spinal cord, for instance, to communicate all the way with a muscle in your toe. So these very elongated projections called axons and dendrites are absolutely essential for the neuron to function and be able to communicate with other cells, other neurons, other parts of the body. When you activate autophagy, it does tend to cause the cell to shrink a little bit and promote survival if there's not enough energy, but you really have this dramatic loss of these neurites and loss of function. So we believe that this is one of the ways in which the fine-tuning of the adaptive response is going to be important. So we started out our studies looking at cell death, and now we've moved into this neurite injury, the neurite remodeling. And we're very excited about that because if we can understand what tips the balance or be able to kind of not prevent the response but just sort of put a limit on it, we could potentially protect these extensions of the neurons. And this would be a reversible phase of injury. So by the time you're looking at cell death, pretty much the cell is either committed to die or you could protect it but it might not have function. But by focusing our efforts now on an earlier phase of injury, what causes the neurons to retract? Can we prevent that retraction and preserve function? Now we are talking about mechanisms that are reversible and could potentially lead to regeneration of functional synapses, if not protecting them.
0: So this is a very nice introduction to the pioneering science that you're conducting. And I might also take this opportunity to congratulate you. I understand you just recently received the American Society for Investigative Pathology Outstanding Investigator Award. And I think that's a reaffirmation of some of the pioneering studies that you're doing. So you've described this science, and ultimately this needs to lead to a therapeutic procedure that might deal with these neurodegenerative diseases. How does these findings to date potentially translate into a therapeutic approach?
1: The most important thing is once you have a conceptual sense that Autophagy can be a double-edged sword, just like any other adaptive response. Inflammation is a double-edged sword. You know, there's a lot of things like that. That's very important therapeutically because a lot of effort has been placed on how can we stimulate autophagy to clear the protein aggregates and to promote cell survival. But if this type of procedure comes with a cost to the actual function, of the neurons, then you're really not improving the disease. So what we have found so far is that it's bad to completely inhibit autophagy, but it's also bad to have a relative overactivation, activation of autophagy beyond the point where it's helpful. And our most recent discovery that was published in Journal of Cell Biology last month reflects a very specific molecular mechanism by which vertebrate cells can kind of put a ceiling or put the autophagy response into lower gear. So it doesn't completely block it, but there's a phosphorylation site on the protein called microtubule-associated protein 1 light chain 3. We call it LC3. LC3 is a very central protein for autophagy, it absolutely has to be covalently conjugated to the membrane that will form the autophagosome. And it's actually essential for extension of that membrane around the cargo as well as closure to complete the autophagosome. So what we found is that the protein kinase A can directly phosphorylate LC3. And what this does is it doesn't block basal levels of autophagy but it blunts the degree of autophagy that you get when you injure the cell, and that comes with protection against the neurite retraction that we get from either a toxin-based model of PD using MPP+, it's a complex 1 inhibitor, and it also protects against the neurite retraction that we get when we apply a mutant form of the protein called leucine-rich repeat kinase 2 which is believed to actually be the most common known cause of Parkinson's disease in that it's a very common cause of familial disease and also seems to be mutated in sporadic cases. So we believe that while PKA has very broad effects, one of the effects of PKA that protects the cells is through direct modulation of this autophagic response And so this could give rise to potential therapeutic targets that focus on this aspect of PKA activity.
0: Based on these findings and these hypotheses that you have, how would you clinically treat something like Parkinson's disease if these hypotheses are verified?
1: Well, I think the key issue with regard to autophagy is that we have to look at both sides of the picture. On the one hand, if you're going to increase degradation, if you need to also maintain a steady state size of the cell, or have even the recycling or regenerative process go through, that we need to also be able to support the biosynthesis side. So, if you think about it, you know atrophy, neurodegeneration, all of that may be, in a broader sense, thought of as an imbalance between things that drive degradation, we have damaged organelles, we got to degrade them, and the inability of the cell to keep up and to regenerate new constituents to replace the damaged ones. So I think in the larger picture, the major issue with it is that it has such ubiquitous effects throughout the body because PKA not only decreases autophagic degradation, but many other previous studies have shown that it increases differentiation of neurons, it increases transcription of neuroprotective, neurostabilizing factors, and it also protects mitochondria through direct tethering to the mitochondria. It has targets on the mitochondria. So it seems that going after a multiplicity of effects, promote stabilization of the mitochondria and in, in its function, prevent the cell death, prevent the autophagic retraction, and also promote regenerative biosynthesis, this kind of combination approach is probably the best hope. The question is how to delineate mediators that would specifically have the subsets of desired effects without evoking other things that can potentially have side effects. It's pretty far off, but I think the conceptually it's not just a matter of a single disease mechanism that has to be halted, but it's actually restoring balance to the cell. I think that's the important part of the research.
0: And these mediators that you speak of, the challenge would be to be able to regulate these depending on the disease state, I presume.
1: Yeah, I think that would be the challenge. We don't know for sure whether or not the mechanisms at play with the dominant genetic causes, the recessive genetic causes, and the toxin-based causes, whether they all enter the same mechanism, but if we can understand which part of this biosynthetic degradation system has been imbalanced, what leads to the imbalance, then we can pinpoint therapies to reverse that.
0: So I think our listeners will understand from this discussion that this is some very fundamental science that you're pursuing. And in terms of milestones on, on your critical path chart to bring some of these things to maturity... It's, what, another five years before this might be something maturing to the point that a clinical trial is feasible?
1: Well, I think that protein kinase A has been studied so extensively, and we are already at the point where we can say certain effects of protein kinase A require mitochondrial targeting, other effects require its nuclear localization, and the autophagy effects are non-nuclear, not transcriptional. But either mitochondrial or cytosolic-targeted PKA can have these effects. So I think in terms of that, we're getting closer. But if we can actually identify more the specific downstream mediators of certain effects, then we can bypass some of the potential problems with putting in a stimulator of such a broad-acting kinase. Now, I mean, people use PKA stimulation in vivo in animal models already for various types of experiments, but the limitation is do you really want to stimulate such a broad signaling pathway chronically? So I think the proteomic approach of identifying specific downstream mediators, you know, you have a given master kinase that can activate multiple pathways. Can we go further down the desired pathway and find an important mediator there? that may not have the other effects of the original kinase.
0: So these studies are obviously focusing on Parkinson's, but what other types of diseases might your findings be applicable to?
1: I think that our findings with regard to the mitochondrial stabilization and the imbalance between biosynthesis and degradation would be applicable to any neurodegenerative disease for which mitochondrial dysfunction has been implicated, which is basically all of them. As you mentioned before, what we're discovering about the vertebrate fine-tuning of autophagy is a kind of more of a fundamental cell biologic question and therefore is likely to have relevance to a broad spectrum of diseases that relate to imbalance between biosynthesis and degradation. One of the things I hadn't mentioned is One of my graduate students a couple years ago has actually discovered that oxidative stress does decrease nuclear activity of several of these signaling pathways. It decreases the neuroprotective transcription. So our original hypothesis that we started off with is actually correct, but it was just a lot more complicated as these things are than we had envisioned. And I do have one student that's actually shown there's a actual deficit in active nuclear import of subsets of signaling proteins and not others. So he's trying to delineate what gives rise to susceptibility or resistance to this oxidative impairment of nuclear import. And Of course, if these factors can't get into the nucleus, they can't affect transcription. So our lab has actually mapped out both halves of this imbalance that you have increased and sometimes excessive autophagy at the same time that some of the trophic signals can't get through to the nucleus to initiate regeneration.
0: So these various types of strategies that you're discussing and evaluating, if your hypotheses are validated, how would a clinician make use of this in a clinical setting? This could be regulated by a pill, injections, what type of therapy?
1: Well, it becomes difficult because it depends on the nature of the downstream mediators. If the downstream targets end up being something that a specific drug can be developed to activate or to modulate, then obviously it could be more standard therapies. However, if it turns out that it requires molecular manipulation, that cells have to be induced to express things, then that becomes harder. And I think that's where the kinase aspect of, things comes in because it's more likely that you're going to be able to find some sort of mediator, has to be it across the blood-brain barrier, that can modulate a specific kinase without having to actually overexpress or put in short hairpins to knock down the expression of that protein. And so a lot of what we are doing right now is in the discovery phase of what does lie downstream of kinases that go to the mitochondria. This whole area of mitochondrial kinase signaling is pretty new. You know, everybody has been studying cytosolic nuclear translocations, but many kinases, including another one that we study, the P10-induced kinase 1, or PINK-1, which is mutated in recessive families with Parkinsonian syndromes. PINK-1 actually has an n sequence that targets it directly to mitochondria. So we are doing a lot of discovery work with phosphoproteomics with Billy Day's facility to try to identify pink one's another one of these very neuroprotective kinases, but we really don't know what are the mediators and pathways that get disrupted when pink one is mutated.
0: So Dr. Chu, this has been very interesting in learning about your studies, but how do you see findings in the laboratory changing as you progress?
1: I think, as you can tell from what's already been discussed, is that we start off with a hypothesis, and then we get things that are unexpected, and that's actually part of the joy of science, is that we really don't know what we're going to discover, and the data leads us in new directions. And then oftentimes we think maybe our initial hypothesis was wrong, but as we get more into the mechanism, we find that actually... Portions of it are correct, but the story is just a lot more complicated than we had initially thought. So it's kind of hard to predict in a straight line what direction your research is going, but I think that the identification of specific molecular alterations to the cellular machinery that can then potentially lead to therapeutic targets is the most rewarding aspect of things.
0: Very interesting. Dr. Chu, I'd like to thank you for sharing these pioneering studies. I will post on the podcast website a connection to Dr. Chu's website, so if listeners have more interest, they can explore her studies in more detail. As we conclude, I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of topics to cover. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine who sponsors this podcast series. Until we meet again with another interesting podcast, best wishes to all our listeners and thanks to Dr. Chu.